Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to Mommy Wall Muslim, a podcast designed with the Muslim American parent in mind, addressing how to raise Muslim American kids born into a post 9 11 world. We will cover topics ranging from potty training to politics, and no topic is off limits. Along with our expert guests, we'll discuss what's new in the Muslim American diaspora or just what's new at our own kitchen tables. Join us, Zeba Hassan, Nozma Joffrey, who have a combined eight kids and 25 years of parenting experience, as well as just enough crazy between them while they pioneer this journey we call Mommy, Mommy Wall Muslim. Muslim. Um, Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Mommy Well Muslim. This is Zeba Hassan, along with my lovely co-host, Osma Jaffrey. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. And we have a special guest here today, Dr. Sarah Qureshi. Um, her CV is so long that I know I'm going to miss some of it, but... <laughs> Just put it this way, she's just somebody I want to be when I grow up, so I definitely appreciate her being here. She is a graduate of the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and the Harvard School of Public Health. She completed her residency training in family medicine at UCSF and a fellowship in community health leadership and development at Georgetown. Is there anything <laughs> Is there anything that I missed in all of that? Because I know you're, you specially work with health issues aff- affecting the Muslim communities. Um, no, no. I mean, you you went over, you went over a lot. Thank you for the intro, and thank you both so much for having me on here. I'm super excited about your podcast and what you're doing in our community, and so I'm thrilled to be here talking to you. Um, I I have worked on healthcare issues in the Muslim community, but currently my job is I um, am I, I teach at Georgetown Medical School. So it's more oh. currently that I'm working with medical students and residents, and we, I do have my we have our own faculty practice, but I only do that one day a week, and the rest of my time is a lot of clinic teaching and then also in the first and second year of med- medical school teaching about um, social determinants of health, structural determinants of health, racism in medicine, and uh, health equity, a lot of the bigger um, bigger picture health issues which our medical students definitely need. Why do you think it's so important? Because we, you know, medical students graduating, you know, thousands and thousands per year, and we get really good education on the basic sciences and physiology and pathology and histology and pharmacology, and which is all obviously very important. Um, but one of the bigger picture issues is, one, knowing how to communicate with different populations, because who knows where everybody's going to end up practicing and what populations they're going to have. And the other part of it is also knowing that, honestly, only... of like health is related to actually medical care that patients get in the clinic. So what we do in the clinic really doesn't have the biggest effect on our patients and community's health. It's really a lot of the bigger picture issues. And I, so that's why this is so important to me because I feel like doctors need to be aware of this and also need to be at the table when policies are being developed um, because we know the direct effect that different policies can have on our patients and communities' health. And so when I was in medical school, we got a little bit on cultural competency, um, but not that much else. And that's also why I went and got a, a master's in public health, because I was really interested in knowing w- knowing what I can do besides just with my clinical skills in that one-on-one interaction with patients. What can I do on a larger scale to advocate for my communities? Um, and so we, I didn't, I mean, I, it was good in medical school. I, I got a great training, but not as much. And so what we're trying to do is really 
talk about these issues, have uncomfortable conversations about race. I mean, race is a, I'm doing some research with medical students right now on race and medicine, and we're finding medical schools and the medical environment is like the last to accept that race is not a biological construct, but it's more a sociological construct. And the way it's taught in all of our literature and medicine books, it's taught as if it's a biological construct. So we're really lagging behind and we're trying to change that in the curriculum to say it's not really that somebody's black that makes them at risk. It's really related to sociological factors. So why don't we just say those are the risk factors, not the race itself? I'm so in love with that concept because um, I'm family medicine geriatrics. And I agree with you that it's all taught as it's very um, disease based. And these diseases happen in these ethnicities or these racial um, profiles more barely brushing over the fact that there is this socioeconomic um, imbalance that causes that too. And that, you know, while there are a lot of um, even federally funded projects that will help promote education and prevention, they're not happening in places where they really need to happen. Most of the people who have access to those programs are also in affluent areas and they belong to a specific um, racial uh, community. And we're not targeting the populations that really need to be targeted. So I that's very new to me to think of like, say, diabetes as not an African American problem, as an African American problem due to social disparities and social injustice, which I'm I really love that you guys are doing that. Is there um, is there a particular project that you're working on with your uh, students and residents right now regarding that? Um, well, right now, we actually, there is, uh, we I have some really, I mean, all the students here are so bright in so many different ways, but there are some second-year medical students who are now, just now starting their third year, actually. This was the first week of clinical rotations, but last summer, um, I worked with them, and they basically analyzed the entire preclinical curriculum at Georgetown Medical School, and picked out all the places in lectures where race was mentioned and whether it was mentioned in a biological context or sociological or no context at all. And so we're, um, do we have a lot of upcoming research presentations on it and also some papers. And we're tr- the big thing about it is we're trying to do faculty training so that faculty can feel more comfortable talking about race in an appropriate way. Um, so that's one project. But the other thing, and it's it's cool that I'm talking to you both today because we just got done this morning with one of the courses that I co-direct. It's called Patients, Populations, and Policy. And um, it's exactly, you know, what the topics we're talking about. So in the fall, we talked more about, we taught the students more about health disparities and health equity. And one of the things all of our 200 first-year medical students did had to do was watch the documentary 13th. And that was something new that we introduced in the curriculum last year. Um, and the students respond really well. We have a panel afterwards, but um, it's just, we feel like it's so important for future doctors to understand the way historically our what has happened in our country historically and how that affects disparities. We can't just talk about disparities and say, oh, these groups live in poverty without explaining what led to what led to these disparities and these inequities. And so that's one of the things. They also did a field trip to the National Building Museum. There's an exhibit on evicted and community policing project. Um, but then fast forward to today, it was our second kind of week of the course, and we ended with small groups for students pretended that they were, um, or they role-played that they were advocating on a specific issue to a legislator in Congress. And the issues were um, reproductive health, um, immigration, and the DREAMers, DACA, um, 
what else, climate change and things like that. So we just feel like it's so important for future physicians to know how to advocate in, a pro- in different ways. That's actually really fascinating to me as somebody who's not a doctor, right? So from a layman's perspective, like even when I go to a doctor just myself, right, there are certain things that, and I'm an American born Muslim, but there are certain things that sometimes I have to describe to my doctor who's treating me about certain things that we do either culturally or as a community. And the fact that we're now getting, the doctors are now getting training for that really, I think it's going to help the broader based care for people. Good. I'm glad to hear you say that because I hope so. That's the goal. I mean, because you do have to explain things like, well, you know, culturally, this is what we do and this is how we do it. And they kind of look at you with like a blank stare, you know, that's just not, and and personally, I think that's definitely needed um, in the medical community. So the fact that you guys even have a program for that is amazing. So can I be really ignorant and ask both of you guys, um, what is the 13th? It's a documentary about scholars, activists that are, and politicians that are essentially analyzing the criminalization of African Americans and the U.S. prison boom. And I think the 13th probably is the 13th Amendment. It really outlines like how we essentially, in a symbolic way, went from slavery, but then to mass incarceration as almost yes. as a form of slavery. Oh, that, that's actually interesting. And you know, what's ironic is that most of our medical system as we know it today, our EMTs, our first responders, emergency medicine was all developed by black people, by black Americans. It was the Black Panthers who actually established the first ambulance system. And that's not something that's taught in medical schools. Yeah, absolutely. Great point, Uzma. Even the hospital medical reforms that we have now that keep our medical system in check was because of the Black Panthers. It's really difficult as a physician to get your own community to understand that there is this responsibility to reveal the narrative of all people. For a lot of people, I feel like it's, well, it doesn't affect me, so why do I even have to worry about it? I don't know how to get people. I don't know how to get people to buy in and realize that they've got to correct this for other people so that when our turn comes up next, um, not waiting for our friends and neighbors to get affected, because everybody's a friend and neighbor, um, getting them to buy in. Um, have you had any success with that, Sarah, through your work? It's so difficult. And I mean, one way it, in in education is kind of having students put themselves in somebody else's shoes. And so we do like a hunger simulation. And that's why we have them actually, rather than just get lectures, do actual experiences. They write a um, reflection essay um, after they take this implicit association test. And if you guys haven't heard of those, um, you know, it's not the end all be all, but I think one of the things we stress for all learners is to, for all of us, not just learners, is to learn our, about our own biases because we all have biases yes. in one way or another. And that's huge in it. And it, and it plays a, especially in healthcare in any field, actually, it really, the downstream effects of biases can, can be really negative if we're not aware of our own biases. So we have them take the race one, but there's also one, I mean, um, there's one on, um, fat thin bi- bias, which a lot of physicians have biases against obese people. There's also one on gender, male, female. There's one on disability, ability. And there's even one on Islamophobia, which is fascinating. Harvard developed these tests. But we have the students do the one on race and then write a reflection essay on that. So I think pushing the students to think about these things and be aware of their own biases and then come up with we go over like ways to do debiasing and to continually do that. I think that's one way and that can apply to any population population. it, a, a lot of that, uh, some of the things we teach is working with vulnerable populations and 
what biases you might have. So I, I feel like that's one strategy is to kind of just, there's, you know, I, there's negative, there's downsides to simulations, but I know at the nursing school, they do a poverty simulation. Um, and then in Maryland, some of our students actually went and did a simulation on be, being a returning citizen from from jail or from the prison population and for them to experience how challenging that is, how challenging it is to just get a job once you've like gotten out of jail and to transition. So I feel like some of those experiential things are important. And then what 13th did is they were able to put all this complex history and all these numbers into a way that was really easily digestible and understandable to like the layperson. Um, so the, I guess documentaries like that or graphics and things. That'd be important. So, so you mentioned about like de-biasing. What are some of the things that we can start, uh, like myself, start today to de-bias some of the things that I have? Because the truth of the matter is all of us have some of these biases, even if we're the most woke people or consider ourselves the most woke people, we do have our own internal biases. What are some things that we can start doing now or to teach our children to kind of prevent passing some of those biases on to our children since we are moms too, right? And teaching our kids in, in hopes that they're, they're, we're not passing along some of our, our biases to them. What are some things that we can do today to kind of help with that? One thing I'll say with the students is we um, we have somebody who's who's really great. He comes and give, gives a lecture on this, and one of the biggest things is just because you're you have biases doesn't necessarily mean you're prejudiced, and um, it also doesn't mean that you're the you know horrible. That's like one thing we try to tell the students in a lot of the reflection essays. They're like, I'm so upset that like I prefer white people over black people, and you know I always tried not to. So that's one thing. I mean, I think like you just reiterated really nicely. We all have biases. Um, so some of the strategies that uh, we are, some of our guests like lecturers have gone over are um, if you well one I, the first and foremost is just being aware of your biases. So um, I think t- discussing things or taking like the IAT tests and understanding that you might have these biases, and then un- trying to think about situations you might be in where these biases might come up, and just when they do come up, taking a step back. For a second and kind of acknowledging it and, and, and drawing the board clean and saying, you know what, I'm just going to start from zero and not just go to my instinct or what I think I know, um, but reframe the situation from zero, especially if you know you're going to be dealing with people, a certain population that you might be biased against if that makes sense. And the other thing is learning more about that group of people or that population that you might be biased against. Um, whether it's through reading or especially through get, getting to know them, that's like one of the most powerful ways. That's interesting. And you can we can do that right away with our kids, right? I take my kids once a month to a, a local church. They actually work with a food pantry and then they shop for this family in the food pantry and it kind of puts names and faces together. It's a certain population that my kids probably are sheltered from um, on a day-to-day basis. And then you're supposed to sit down with them and offer prayer. And a lot of these people are happen to be Muslim as well, African-American Muslim in the, that Muslim population. And it's so fun for me to watch my kids essentially do, they're like, do you want to do the Christian prayer or the Muslim prayer? And they whisper, we're going to do the Muslim prayer. And they do the Muslim prayer. But when they come home and they're in that car, they really are just blown away within the two hours that we're there once a month, right, of how there's a huge, this is not even three miles away from our house, how there's such a huge discrepancy from where we live and where this 
food pantry is located, that there's even a need for, for that. So I agree. I think being a part, going and being a part of the community, whether, and, and being outside of your comfort zone a little bit, I think is very helpful. No, I think that's absolutely beautiful. And that's something uh, hopefully more parents can model is, you know, again, there's just so many different groups. So it's not just race, it's religion, it's different cultures, and just kind of like letting our kids learn about all of them. And us then modeling that respect in the way that we speak about the other other people. Um, you know, obviously, I think that plays a large role too, right? They hear so much of what we say in the way we speak about other people or they watch what we do. But um, I think your example is really beautiful. And I, I you know, I, I struggle with that as my kids, I think, not I think, I know my kids are younger than yours, Zeba. Um, I'm not yeah. sure how old yours are. Mine are 10, 9, 8, and 4. Oh, wow. Mashallah, both of you are like super moms. <laughs> Amazing. And you're doing this podcast. Great. I am inspired. Um, but I, so I have a four and a half year old and a two and a half year old. And, you know, we're at the place with my four and a half year old where we are thinking about school. And right now he just goes to a play-based school three half days a week. But, you know, in thinking about elementary school, I really struggle because obviously I do want my kids to get a great education. But for me, what's probably more important than that um, are two other things. One, that they are around a diversity, a diverse group of kids and not just racially, but also socioeconomically um, and and, and in so many other different ways, right, culturally. And so that that's one piece of it. And the other piece of it is wanting them to be in a place where it's um, how do I word it? It's they they can develop more emotionally and socially versus like, you know, academically, that's not as much a priority. And that's almost even like more important. So, yeah, just, you know, struggling with that. Like, you know, my husband and I have been talking a lot about there's like an elementary school right down the road from where we live it has not that good of ratings at all. Um, but yeah, just we're, we're in the middle of trying to make some of those decisions. Well, you have two kids, so you can experiment. You could send one to one school, <laughs> one to the other school and have your own set of data. Yeah, but but the reality of the situation is you you're very important. Like when we were choosing a kindergarten, when we had for, for my oldest, we were in an area that was ninety nine point nine percent white. So like we'd be at a play play date, and they'd be like, "Which one is your kid?" And I'm like, "You know, the only dark haired kid in the room. Yeah, that one's mine." You know, and and I and I after a while, it really started bothering me because I'm thinking, "How is it going to affect him?" in how he views the world. I remember so many times during during elementary school or middle school, you know, we'd be in chapel and they'd say, raise your hand if you haven't accepted Jesus <laughs> in your heart. And so it'd be like me, my brother and sister. In but life. why did or you raise your hand? Raising your hand loud and proud. Yes. Yeah, totally. So I, it's who had- I know. I was like, well, I was like, I'm not going to lie. And I haven't accepted Jesus in my heart. So we'd raise our hand. There's like maybe there's a few other Muslims too, I, you know. But depending on the class, sometimes I was the only person in chapel raising my hand. And then there are times where my friends, and bless their hearts, I mean, they just really cared. They would, like, send me a little note saying, do you want to accept Jesus in your heart? With little boxes saying yes I know. or no. And I would, like, oh mark gosh. no and send it back. Bless mark- their hearts. I know. Because <laughs> they cared so much. They're like, we love you, and we don't want you to go to hell. But um, And then there's one time where one of my classmates took me outside to the playground, and she's like, this is how I did it with my little brother. She's like, just repeat after me. I accept Jesus in my heart. And then I like kind of looked at her, and I was like, I don't want to do this. And she's like, okay. And we went back inside, and the teacher looked at her, and she nodded her head. And I was like... <laughs> Oh, so she was asked by the teacher. So, yeah, and this wasn't fifth grade, but what my point in saying that is I actually think it's interesting, like, you know, being a minority religion and even, like, in your own school, in an interesting way, it really solidified solidified my identity as a Muslim 
and um, helped me think about those things early on. And even though my parents weren't super practicing, I, we identified as Muslim. And it was just like, I think then after that, there was nothing that was hard identifying as a Muslim because I, I mean, can you, you know, raising your hand in chapel is the only person to say I haven't accepted Jesus in my heart. <laughs> Again, it works out differently for different people, but I think for my brother, sister, and I, it was actually, well, one, a positive experience. We got to study the Bible and understand another religion. And two, we all kind of like in high school started exploring different religions and really, you know, accepted Islam on our own. It was kind of like, well, this yeah. is what we want to believe. Um, and again, it's different for everybody, but I was thinking a lot about um, my identity as a Muslim and, there, you know, why, why it's never been hard because I feel like from the start, I had to kind of defend that identity at an early age. Our kids are doing that all the time. I mean, Zeba and I have discussed how our kids end up apologizing for things that aren't their fault, that they have nothing to do with. And, you know, while we spend a lot of time being so upset about Islamophobia and being so upset about racism, we forget, you know, as you discussed before and brought up to us, this um, inherent bias that we have. Well, I mean, we have biases within our community uh, about so many things and certainly have our own set of xenophobic um, beliefs. So until we address those, I don't think that Islamophobia can go anywhere. Sarah, like you, you mentioned you have a four and a half and a two and a two year old. How has being a mom kind of shaped your own interpretation of one practicing medicine or what you would want to do differently for your kids based on how you grow up? I think I cared about a lot of the same issues even before I was a mom, to be honest with you. And especially being a family physician and like taking care of families, but obviously like being a mom, it, you know, you, you, when you actually then have your own little ones, it like, it flips it on its head. It's like, oh, wow, you're living this day in, day out. And I mean, granted what happened in Christchurch, um, New Zealand, my kids are a little bit young, like where we didn't talk about it in detail. Those kind of things make me think a lot about, um, it just, it, the, the world that we're giving our kids and um, our responsibility. And so one of the things, there are uh, two things that um, that Uzma was saying um, that I, I wanted to respond to because I, I thought it was so nice. Well, one of them is I remember being, so Islamophobia is real and I, and I totally get it. And you know, that's like my husband's like expertise and specialty. I had it, it, it was really interesting that like when, as it's happened, I've had a little bit of anger with our Muslim community uh, around it, to be honest with you. And, I, and I've tried to, like, take a step back now, but I, I want to explain why. I, because I've worked with vulnerable populations, and I, and I do asylum exams and work with refugees, and um, also work a lot in the African-American population. I was a primary care provider at Unity Clinic in Northeast D.C. for a few years before joining faculty here at Georgetown. You know, working really closely in that community with the families, getting to know them. I, I've, it was really interesting that until it happened to Muslims, I just, like, I, you know, I, I would hear Muslim parents be like, I really worry about my child going out in public, and I worry about my child's future, which I totally get. But as Muslims, I feel like whether or not it's happening to us, we should see what's going on in our communities. Care. And African-Americans for years, yeah. I mean, this is like years and years and years that I see the mothers of black boys have been dealing with worse yeah. than Islamophobia. And so I just worse. felt pretty angry. Like, I was like, wow. I mean, I know it's normal human nature, but like only now that it's happening to us, do we kind of like recognize it and care to do something or care about it. But, you know, at the same time, I think we should be merciful. And this goes for like anybody, right? At When they come to their own 
awareness of something and like kind of walk with them through it rather than judge them. So I, you know, took a step back from that anger and I was like, well, it's good that our communities are waking up to this stuff now. But I just hope in moving forward, we can care about these things, whether or not they're occurring to our community specifically. And that's like when I think about having kids, that's what I want to teach my kids. So what is our takeaways today, Sarah? Like what you would want our listeners to, to, to go out and do right now? I think one of them is going and watching the 13th documentary. I would maybe recommend for everybody to look up the Harvard Implicit Association Task. Take one or two of those. And again, it is not like a 100% exact science by any means. It's Project Implicit. It says, log in, take a test about us, education. We will definitely put this in our show notes. Um, Awesome. Well, yeah, I think just like looking at the test and thinking about what our own biases are. I think as in terms of being a parent, just like modeling that good behavior is so huge. Like, cause we can talk to our kids about it again and again and again, but if they see us doing something differently, then it honestly like doesn't even matter. So um, I think being really careful about how we speak in our in our homes because it all starts at home um how we speak about other groups how we speak about um i don't know even like you know if something happens at work i i I try to check myself and obviously i'm learning too and this is advice for myself not just for everybody else but you know being careful like what i'm talking to my husband about in front of the kids or how i'm speaking about somebody and um you know like I don't know. For us also like making, you know, making sure I don't make comments about people's appearances, right? Because that's one, not what's important, but two, also making sure they don't like take any, you know, any takeaways from that. I mean, honestly, you know, growing up in a South Asian household, there was so much racism among South Asian households. And the things that I heard growing up just from like extended relatives uh, about like how fair skin, I mean, it's just like, I think about it. I was like, I never want my kids to even hear anything like that, to even know that there's like such a thing. Already sat down because, um, he has a kid in his class, a, a boy in his class who has two moms that kind of came up like where he asked and we, and it's, it's great though, to be able to sit there. And I mean, he's still a little young, but to like, start to talk about how families, yeah. um, look different and it doesn't yeah. mean that they're, they're any, they're just as loving. My other piece of advice, but we didn't we didn't talk about this as much in the conversation, is the whole notion of what will people say. Because the adolescence I see, and again, this isn't just Muslims, but I mean, the biggest thing is like anxiety and worry about, am I doing good enough? Am I going to get into the best school? And it's just so unhealthy. And a big part of it is, oh my gosh, like what are people going to think of me and what will people say? So anyways, that would be my other piece of advice. Even for moms, gosh, moms are always, you know, double guessing themselves. And it's like, no, you're good enough. You are good enough. What you're doing is perfect for your family. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of Momming while Muslim. Tune in next week. Salam alaikum, everyone. Salam alaikum. Salam alaikum. Thank you, ladies. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Osman Momming while Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Mm-hmm.